Hi, I'm Dr. Akiva Down. And I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And welcome to Interesting Questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing issues that are philosophical, religious, and psychological in nature, and exploring some of the deeper questions as we go into Season 2. We will be focusing on that which is considered to be controversial, and there may not be a right or wrong answer. So we are hoping that our discussions will yield more questions for your Shabbos table. Hello, and welcome to Interesting Questions. Shavua Tov! This week we are going to begin by discussing the three weeks and Tishavav, which the three weeks are starting this Thursday. For those of you looking, the Thursday, well, really Wednesday night starts Shiva Sarvatamuz. So, Avi, let's start off with the basics. Tell us a little bit more about what are the three weeks, what do they represent, and more so, why is it that with the three weeks, yeah, there are some limitations. However, the difference between the three weeks and the nine days seems rather stark when we look at that. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about why it is that there's such a vast difference between what we hold by during the three weeks versus what we additionally hold by during the nine days. So let's start, like you said, with the basics and talk about what happened. For anyone who doesn't know, Shiva Sarba Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz, is the date when the walls of Yerushalayim were breached and the army that had been surrounding the walls uh, during the time of the Second Temple went in and began to pillage the, the city of Yerushalayim. And so it is sort of the beginning of the end when it comes to the Second and, and currently the most recent Beit HaMikdash. And so it begins a time of sadness, it begins a time of mourning, and so there are certain activities that we take on upon ourselves to commemorate that event. Um, men generally tend not to get haircuts or to shave uh, um, unless they need to for professional reasons. Um, there is a general feeling that we don't do communal events that are uh, of a positive nature. So, for instance, we don't do weddings. Um, we don't do large get-togethers during this time, all of which begin on Thursday, which is Shiva Sarbatamus. Things get more intense when we hit Rosh Chodesh Av, the first of Av, um, as we enter the last nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, and Tisha B'Av commemorates the destruction of both the first and the second Beit HaMikdash, and so it is during that time that things become, again, as we said, even more intense. We stop eating meat, except on Shabbat during those days. We really limit our use of um, hot water. I should have mentioned that during the three weeks, there are a lot of people who don't swim for pleasure. Um, and so we take on a lot of the, the traditions that a mourner would take on um, when they are at first in Shloshim and then in Shiva. So it's sort of the reverse. We are 
we are, whereas most people would, would normally go from Shiva, which is the seven days of most intense mourning, into Shloshim, the 30 days of slightly less intense mourning, we are going from sort of those, those components that would be connected with Shloshim and then into those events that might be connected to Shiva. And this is a communal, a communal type of mourning, and therefore it isn't something that someone sort of does on their own, but it is something that is done by the community. And I think that this is maybe where we turn it back to you, Akiva, to talk a little bit about one of the challenges that I think most people have connected to Shiva Sarvatamus and connected to Tishabhav is getting ourselves in the right frame of mind. In other words, none of us who are living have ever seen the Beit HaMikdash up and working. None of us have had that opportunity to, and that experience of seeing the Beit HaMikdash destroyed. And I would dare say most of us have not even had the experience of really being besieged and in dire straits where we are worried for our lives. And so how do we get ourselves into the right headspace to say that this is something that I am missing when it's something I've never experienced? You know, Avi, that's a great question. I think that the truth is is that we can't ever know. And so the idea that we're going to get ourselves in the headspace to understand what it is to lose something so meaningful and so impenetrably valuable to us and not even know that it's a thing in our lives because it, we've never had a Beit HaMikdash. We've never experienced what it is to all gather three times a year in Yerushalayim. Some of us don't even know what it is to go to Israel. We, we can't possibly fathom something like this. And so I think the idea is not necessarily that one should try, because try and try, you will fail. I do think, however, that there's a way to think about the idea of what it means to know that a special part of your life has not been experienced. And we do know what it feels like to know that we're missing out on something. We may not know the depth of that. We may, may not know how how difficult it is or how amazing the experience would be. But I sincerely doubt that there are too many of us who can't think of something where we said, you know, I know I'm missing out on this. And at some point, we've experienced something where we go, oh, I didn't know this was like this. And then we can think back. And, and obviously that's more of a backwards way, but then again, so are the three weeks and the nine days. It's a backwards way of mourning. So... I'm not surprised that that's perhaps the best comparison that we can have. This idea of, well, I didn't know I was missing it till I missed it, or till I experienced it and realized what I was missing. But at the same time, again, we know what it is to miss family. We know what it is to miss loved ones. We know what it is to, unfortunately, many of us know what it is to not be there for a special event, either because you were unable to, or it wasn't an option, especially with having experienced COVID, many of us know what it is to not be able to be there with people who we wanted to be there with. And so I suppose that if we're thinking about what it means to not have the Beit HaMikdash, aside from the obvious, 
there is that huge connection piece, that piece of losing something. And so I think that if we can consider that and consider how important our relationships are to us and how important our experiences are, that it does give us an opportunity to possibly even come close to considering what we might be missing out on. One of the things that the Gemara tells us, Akiva, is that the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash was, uh, was caused by the idea of sinat chinam, uh, baseless hatred between Jews and other Jews. And I've heard many rabbis talk about that the way to correct this is through Ahavat chinam, um, which can loosely be translated as free love, but really means uh, love without uh, without expectation of getting anything back. Um, that that this the the way for us to do teshuva for this is a way of doing things for others without expecting anything in return. Um, and in particular for other Jews in our community or Jews around the world, I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about what might cause baseless hatred and how can we get ourselves in the right headspace to do some, some um, love without expectations. I think most of us know what it is to experience someone hating us for no reason. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, if, if you do anything different and you were ever in elementary school, middle school, high school, probably somebody didn't like it. Not have a good reason. Just said, well, I don't like that and therefore I don't like you. And for those of us who are Jewish, sadly, we know what it is for people to hate us for absolutely no reason all the time. Sometimes for a reason, unfortunately, with some behaviors uh, of specific individuals, not as a group. But I think in general, the idea of hating something just because of hatred Sadly, there are so many different groups of people who know what it is to experience that. And so I don't know if I necessarily need to explain what that feels like or what causes that because there's never a good reason. That's the whole point. There is absolutely, it's unfounded hatred. It's not liking someone because of, pick, pick, Pick your fake reason. And I say fake reason for a, a meaning, right? Like, so maybe your hashkaf is different than mine, so therefore I don't get along with you. Maybe, oh, well, you do this, or you cover your hair that way, or you wear this kind of kippah, or perhaps this is the color of your skin, or this is the color of your eyes. Pick any random reason that really is not about what it is for the person themselves. Akiva, would you say that there might be an underlying component of fear? In other words, is there a fear of this person? Is there a fear of, if this person is doing X, maybe I'm not doing it correctly? Or am I oversimplifying things? 
I think sometimes that might be the case. However, I think a lot of times if we really look at this, sometimes that's an excuse. Right? So if I hate you because you're doing it this way and therefore it makes me question whether I'm doing it the right way. That's not any good, any better of a reason for me to hate you. That's just me fabricating a, ah, I hate you because. Uh, but the truth is, is that that's not a justification. It's, it's, it's an after the fact. It's an excuse for why you don't like them. The, the baseless hatred, I, I suppose, could be compared to just a visceral response. The problem, and visceral meaning just whenever we see something and we say, oh, I really just, that rubs me the wrong way. But here's the thing. Right? More often than not, if we're being honest, those kind of visceral responses can occur in situations that don't involve people. Uh, if you're looking at the design of a house and it just doesn't mesh well with you, you may have a visceral response. You can't say what it is you don't like or why it is you don't like, but you just don't like. But it's a house. It's a thing. It's not a human being. It's not a person. I think if we're coming up with reasons why after the fact, either A... It's not baseless, or B, it's a reason after the fact that it's an excuse to justify something that didn't have a base. The idea of how to have boundaryless love, love without expectation, I suppose probably the easiest entryway is to consider how you feel after you express love towards something or someone. We feel good. We feel good to love. It feels positive. It feels good to do something nice for someone else. It feels good to, to help someone across the street, to check in on, a, a, on a, someone who you know is alone, to invite someone to a meal. The truth is we feel good when we do those things. Sometimes we feel stressed. Sometimes we feel a little bit overwhelmed. Sometimes if we have invited and our spouse was not expecting, we might have upset our spouse inadvertently. But the fact is, is that doing something nice for someone else, doing something enjoyable, is just that. It's enjoyable. It feels good. Even something like, well, let's take one of our mitzvot that you don't, that doesn't matter if you feel good or not, right? Tzedakah. It doesn't matter if you feel good after giving tzedakah. It's still a mitzvah. But the truth is, is that a lot of us, even if we perhaps are struggling even if it's a difficult time, knowing that you've been able to give tzedakah to help someone else, that feels good too. And so I think that one of the best entries into love without expectations, baseless love, boundaryless love, is to consider what things you can do to make yourself feel good. And as long as it doesn't fall in that baseless hatred category, which I think we can generally say that baseless hatred does not leave us feeling good, we do not feel better when we hate, when we have negative feelings for no reason. It doesn't make us feel good. So do what makes you feel good. Don't hurt anybody else, but do what makes you feel good. And I think that will leave you the opportunity to start to see what it is to have a free expression of love. But I want to clarify, when you talk about do what makes you feel good... Are you talking about, well, I can go get a massage, that makes me feel good? Or are you talking about, do something for someone else, and it will make you feel good? 
Well, here's the beautiful part, Avi. Um, let's say it's the first one. Let's say you go and get a massage. Presumably, you're getting a service by paying someone, someone who might need that income. So the truth is, is that is doing something good for someone else. So even that, even if it, that's where you need to start, there you go. I think if we can, again, and, and if we flip it on its head like that, if you think about the idea of, and not that you're doing a kindness by getting a service and paying for it, but the fact is, is that it is something that is good for someone else as well. And it doing good things for someone else in any way, shape, or form doesn't have to be something that makes you feel bad or makes you feel like you've had to work hard to make them feel good. Um, but yeah, obviously the, the less you get in return, I suppose, the more boundaryless the love, the more freely the love is expressed. Some of us are, are in different places when it comes to that. So I think that in general, if we all try to do something that is good for someone else, it makes us feel good in the process. However, that happens again, as long as we're not hurting anyone else then I think that there's an entryway into something better. Perhaps you get a massage from someone who you weren't expecting, or maybe it was from someone who you knew nothing about. Maybe after, you know, 45 minutes of someone working on you, perhaps there's a conversation. Uh, I can imagine that during massages at times there's conversation, sometimes not. But even your dentist talks to you while they're poking and prodding around in your mouth. So the truth is, is that you might end up learning something about someone that you didn't know about, which might decrease discomfort or lack of certainty about what or who someone else is. So I do think it could be an entryway, maybe not the most noble if we're listing the, the, the entries. However, I, I don't think that necessarily matters. I think that an entryway into doing good for others it's an entryway into doing good for others. So I think that leads us to this week's question for around the Shabbos table, which is, what can you do, perhaps ideally for someone else, that is a way to bring goodness and to remove hatred from the world, whether it's a small step or a large step, whether it is giving of your time, giving of your resources, or something else altogether? I mean, I think that's a great question. I'd like it to take it a step further, since we're doing this combination of the three weeks and the nine days. I would ask, challenge, once you've come up with that thing, think about over the next week and change, nearly two weeks, how you're going to implement it, and then maybe during the nine days, put it into action. Do it for someone else. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.